Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Essentials, written by the world's leading sustainable builders, designers, and engineers, New Society Publishers' Sustainable Building Essentials series covers the full range of natural and green building techniques with a focus on sustainable materials and methods and code compliance. From rainwater harvesting to composting toilets to straw bale, rammed earth, hempcrete, and more, these unique books present the essential information on each topic. Find out more about the Sustainable Building Essentials series at NewSociety.com. If you're like me, you've dreamed of having a permaculture farm for a long time, but knowing where to start can be tricky, even if you've already taken a PDC or other design courses. And that's why I want to talk to you about the Permaculture Farm Design Course, put together by my friend and frequent contributor to this podcast, William Horvath, from PermacultureApprentice.com. This course is the simplest, easiest way to design your permaculture farm without spending thousands of dollars on in-person PDCs or hiring professional designers or consultants. This course is the accumulation of William's research and the most important lessons he learned from permaculture giants like Jeff Lawton, Darren Doherty, David Holmgren, and Mark Shepard, all boiled down into a single step-by-step roadmap that anyone can follow. William has simplified the entire design process and meticulously laid down how each phase of the process works with simple instructions and design examples so you can come up with a design for your permaculture farm in as little as one week. You don't even need any previous design experience or PDC to get the most out of this course, just a willingness to learn and follow the system outlined in the program. In a short time, you'll have a plan that has a clear set of goals to allow you to make your vision a reality. What's more, when you type in the code DESIGN at checkout, you'll receive 10% off the price of the course. Make your dream of regenerative living a reality today. Click on the link in the show notes of this episode and fast track your way to natural abundance with the Permaculture Farm Design Course. I've been looking forward to speaking with my next guest for a long time now. Chris Magwood is the founder and director of the Endeavor Center, which provides experiential education at the intersection of high performance and natural building. Chris is a self-proclaimed building omnivore who experiments with any and all materials and techniques that he can get his hands on. He has dedicated his career to making the best, most energy-efficient, beautiful, and inspiring buildings without wrecking the planet in the attempt. Now, I've followed his work, and especially his books, as I've been learning about all sorts of natural building innovations, because Chris has done an amazing job of comparing and contrasting various natural building materials to make it easier to choose which of the options available would be best suited for the context and design of a building. In this interview, Chris talks about how he fell in love with natural building as he aspired to build his own home. From there, we go into detail about some of the most important considerations when designing a sustainable home, and how even natural buildings can be consumptive and wasteful if designed incorrectly for their place and climate. Chris also unpacks some of the popular building standards and why using them as design guides can limit the full potential of an ecologically responsible project if followed too rigidly. We also discuss one of the biggest challenges for natural builders, and that's the codes and regulations that can be tricky to navigate if the regulatory bodies are treated as adversaries from the beginning. 
I especially like his observations from his extensive experience working with rather than against the building inspectors in Canada for so many years. This is a really practical and pragmatic look at the wide variety of options and considerations for natural builders and owner builders. This episode kicks off a series dedicated to all aspects of building and design that facilitates a regenerative lifestyle. So be sure to stay tuned in the next few weeks of episodes as I'll be speaking with builders and designers focusing on in-depth topics and natural building materials. With that preface out of the way, I'll turn things over to Chris. Hey, Chris, how are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. Good to be talking to you. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to finally talk to you. I've been a big fan of your books and have been following your work for quite some time. It's a real pleasure to finally speak to you. Now, I've got a ton of questions that I'd love to ask, kind of circulating around everything you've researched and done with natural buildings. So what do you say we just jump right in? That sounds great. All right. So let's give our listeners a little bit of background information. Tell me how you got interested in natural building and what the project was that first sparked your passion. Sure, yeah. The, the first project was, was actually a, a home for myself and my family. Um, back in the, in the late 90s, we ended up building the first uh, permitted straw bale house in Ontario. And uh, I didn't really have any building experience going into that. So it was a very steep learning curve, but something that I, I really enjoyed. Um, the, the house was also uh, off grid, so you know I, I built uh, a lot of our own energy systems and water systems and things like that. And so I had a a pretty uh, good crash course in in natural building and sort of sustainable living, and wasn't intending on on you know making it a career, but because it was a, an early example of something like that going on, um, people would find out about what we'd done and come visit. And those visits led to requests to, you know, come and teach a workshop. And then at the workshop led to somebody who wanted us to build a house. And within a couple of years, um, the, the natural building side of things became um, my full-time occupation. And that's what I've been doing basically ever since. So you didn't set out at all with the idea of becoming a contractor or a natural building educator? No, not at all. I just, I just wanted a, uh, a good house with a light environmental footprint and no mortgage. And, and that, you know, that's how that started. But I guess uh, a lot of other people did too. And once there was an actual example of something like that, that people could, you know, come and see and experience, the, the sort of invitations kind of followed from that. And, uh, you know, having, having done my own house first, um, inevitably you make a lot of mistakes. I think, you know, I made every mistake it's possible to make in doing something like that. But at each point, I guess I have one of those brains that, you know, as I'm doing something, I'm always thinking about how it could be done better next time. And so when people started, you know, offering invitations for there to be next times, uh, I was really sort of keen to uh, to try to put some of those insights to work, and so yeah, I've been been building uh, and designing ever since. I love that, and it's very similar to my own motivations for getting into this, wanting to build my own house, have a low ecological footprint, and attempt something that, without a ton of experience or formal education one could get started with. And I think a lot of other people can relate to that in natural building as well. But you've taken it a lot further. And I've known you to call yourself a building omnivore. 
Tell me about <laughs> the inspiration to explore natural and vernacular building techniques from all around the world and in a lot of different contexts. Yeah, I think it's it's because, you know, the my my start and the decision to to build a straw bale house in the first place kind of came from uh, my partner and I doing a lot of research into, you know, various methods that that you know were being kind of touted as as being ecologically friendly at the time and and sort of, you know, seeing that if we looked at a whole bunch of these things, you know, nothing was the silver bullet. There were there was always there, you know, people would really uh, talk a lot about the positives, but if you did a little scratching, you'd also find, oh, there's this whole other side of, you know, drawbacks to all of these things. And so, you know, right from the get-go, I think I was really aware that that nothing was perfect and that context mattered a lot. So, you know, we ended up choosing a straw bale house for, you know, a whole bunch of reasons that were specific to, to our context. But, um, you know, I never, I never sort of got started with the notion that that you know that one material was you know the answer to every building's question um and also you know as we developed that house um i i started using solar energy wind energy micro hydro solar hot water and and various versions of those things and realized that you know again there there isn't sort of uh, a one a one answer solution that's going to work in all scenarios for for all cases, and so yeah, uh, I've sort of always had an appetite for trying to figure out what you know what will work in this particular context in this location for this client at this time, and so that that sort of led to um, that kind of omnivorous appetite for you know learning about all kinds of different materials and techniques and systems. And so since you've had such a broad overlook of a wide variety of materials and techniques, I know you wrote and, and sort of uh, laid it out very well in one of my favorite books on this, The Making Better Buildings uh, book that you released with New Society. Can you give me some of the insights that you've gotten from comparing all of these common natural building techniques and how they stack up to one another? Yeah, I think... You know that that book came out of working with so many clients, and people kind of come to me because you know they they know there's this sort of background and experience with sustainable building and and what what we realized as we started you know our design team here was working with a lot of of different clients is that everybody had a very different notion of what they meant by a sustainable building. And we started to see a pattern in the things that that mattered to people, and we realized that that what people were interested in really directed our designs a lot. So, you know, somebody might be thinking about a, a sustainable building as being something that's, say, really healthy for them. You know, really clean indoor uh, environment, really good air quality, really good water quality, really good light quality, and to them, that's a sustainable building. And for somebody else, it might be the carbon footprint of the building and for somebody else it might be the energy efficiency and for somebody else it might be being mortgage free and, and being very low cost. So, you know, we realized that, that of all the materials and systems that are out there, they all kind of stack up differently according to all those different criteria. So that book is kind of based around us looking at the, the kind of like what we saw as the, the 10 criteria that people were kind of coming to us with 
and, and rating the materials, not so much to compare them to each other, but to compare them to those criteria to help people kind of get directed towards the, the, the materials and the systems that, that really suit them. So the, the, our whole approach at Endeavor is to really um, be goal-focused with our clients, you know, to, to try to help them really understand what is it that you actually mean when you say a sustainable building and what is it that you actually sort of like want this building to, to do for you and, and sort of let that direct the selection rather than somebody just saying, I want a straw bale house, you know, which is a very common reaction or I want an earthship or I want solar energy. You know, people tend to fixate on, on a particular material or system, but, and sometimes that's the right choice, but sometimes it's just, it's the right notion, but, but it's not necessarily the right choice when you start digging. So as a, as a designer, I'm sort of a bit like the uh, annoying three-year-old child. Um, if somebody says, I want a straw bale house, I want to say to them, why, you know, what, what's the motivation for that? And so maybe a straw bale house is the right thing to answer that question. Why? But sometimes it's, uh, sometimes that's not. And so, yeah, very interested in, in sort of that, um, the criteria of what makes a, a building sustainable for a particular person. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that insight up. That's one of the main things that I've struggled to communicate and sort of wade through when getting clients initially myself. Like you said, a lot of people come, especially with different uh, ideas based on, you know, fads or books or Facebook posts or whatever that motivated them towards a particular material or building style. And when you start to ask those questions, you understand that the motivation may or may not be linked with what they think it correlates with and you may be able to help them find a better solution for their place their context their budget whatever it is their most important criteria are and so my question would be what are some of the most common criteria i know you you break down 10 in that book but what are the most common ones or the most popular ones that you mostly hear from let's say course participants and clients um i think you know, what's interesting is that, is that it ends up being very individual, but I definitely think that those earlier ones I mentioned, indoor environment quality, um, sort of overall ecological impacts, like, you know, what, what impact the, the building and the material has on, on ecosystems, um, energy efficiency, cost, and sort of coming more and more up more and more these days is, is the carbon footprint part as people start Sort of realizing what an impact uh, buildings do have on on climate change, um, people are really sort of getting motivated to to try to you know make sure that that any project that they're doing has less uh, less climate impact. Absolutely. Now, in in my experience, my personal definitions and priorities that I would choose for myself, with having a little more experience, and certainly you've got a lot more than I do, differ often between um, yeah, what, I, what I see as effective or appropriate for certain contexts based on or in contrast to what the clients say. So what are some of your, let's say, priority criteria that if you were building again for yourself, you would prioritize above others? Um, 
I have been extremely focused on on uh, climate change recently, and so that's definitely a, a big motivator for me. And one of the things that I've realized as I've you know been researching more into the the climate impact of buildings is that without intentionally setting out to do the right thing for the climate from the get go, uh, the kinds of buildings that we've been doing because so many natural building materials are plant based. Um, we've actually been building buildings that um, have a sort of net uh, atmospheric carbon drawdown impact rather than actually having an emissions uh, impact. So the fact that, you know, it's relatively easy to make a building that that is a kind of climate change solution by storing more carbon in the materials than was emitted in making them. Um, that to me is really exciting because they're, you know, it's hard to find relatively straightforward, easy climate solutions, you know, when in the, you know, fields of transportation and, you know, um, energy and all those sorts of things, the the solutions are, are sort of a lot harder to come by, but it's actually relatively easy to make a building that, that has uh, a positive impact on the climate rather than a negative one. So um, that would kind of underlie any building decisions I made for myself, uh, for sure. And so within that, like what have been some of the biggest uh, steps or changes in the process that you advocate for in your buildings or teach through your courses that differ from the more conventional or industrial model of building that shift things toward a, car a carbon neutral or carbon drawback uh, structure? Well, essentially, um, it's incorporating as much plant material as it's appropriate to incorporate like that's that's how you get that that sort of carbon positive profile um in contrast and, you know, to synthetic materials that's right metals? yeah yeah so if you you know if you think about say wall insulation the the amount of energy it takes to produce um say a straw bale is is really really small and that that same straw bale actually you know is storing uh, a really significant amount of carbon and so the net balance between what it took to make the straw bale and, and how much carbon is in it, it's a, it's a net positive. I'm going to store more carbon in my building than was emitted in making the material. If I use something like fiberglass or rock wool um, or much worse, uh, any of the, the plastic foam insulations, those have a, a huge carbon footprint in making them. So, you know, with the mineral-based ones, you're basically either melting glass or melting rock. So you've used a a huge amount of energy and created a lot of emissions to uh, to make that material. Um, and then, yeah, you, if you if you can focus on the plant based materials um, and get away from those those more synthetic ones, that that has a big impact. And there are some some insulation types that that are, you know, not quite from the the natural building world. Things like um, cellulose insulation, which is ground up recycled newsprint, which also stores a, a relatively high amount of carbon, um, and wood fiberboard, um, uh, exterior insulation, which is a more sort of manufactured product. So there are, you know, there's a range of options available that all end up being carbon storing. Some are, are, you know, would be considered quite alternative and some are relatively mainstream, but, um, and the other thing that I've found really interesting is, is you know, as I'm starting to kind of uh, catalog these materials based on their carbon footprint, what's been really interesting is to note that 
when I choose the materials that have the lowest carbon impact, I'm pretty much always choosing the materials that also have uh, the least amount of uh, toxic chemicals in them, the ones that have the smallest uh, environmental footprint in, in sort of other ways besides carbon um, that are produced more locally to me. So they kind of, the low carbon materials options kind of by default seem to bring by all these other benefits that, that, um, that kind of make them good choices in all those other criteria right, contexts right, right. too. So it ends up being sort of a really good proxy. The, the low carbon house or the carbon storing house ends up being, you know, the better house for the occupant, the better house for the planet. Um, and because you can make those buildings just as energy efficient as a, as a conventional building, you know, they can be really good in terms of long-term. Uh, yeah. It's so fortunate that those things correlate so beautifully and it makes making a transition or looking at other options that much more appealing because it ticks so many boxes. When you make one improvement, it can, you know, have uh, effects down the line for your health, for the planet, for your, your wallet and so many other ways. Now, yeah, the co the co benefits are great, and it's you know for for somebody who's spent twenty five years trying to talk to people about all these you know these things, um, if, in terms of of a sort of mainstream adoption of uh, you know better practices, the carbon issue seems to be the one that that is is finally gaining traction. You know, there's. Right. Governments are interested in it. Companies are interested in it. People are interested in it. So I sort of feel like, well, I don't need to, you know, browbeat people about chemical content or browbeat people about ecological impacts of material harvesting. If they're interested in low carbon building, all of those benefits are going to come along with that, that one decision. So it kind of makes it easier to, uh, to kind of make an improvement in general without having to convince people that they they need to think about those other things absolutely now let's shift gears here for a second and talk about some of the most important considerations when actually designing a building i know one of the points that i always try and get across in the natural building courses that i've taught in the past is that you can sort of make or break a good building in the design process and even if you're using very ecological materials all found from from site or um, any of those other criteria for the material side of things, you can still have an extremely inefficient house if the design is incorrect for its place, its context, and its climate. So in your experience, what are some of the most important things to consider when designing your own building? I would say right off the bat, size. Um, you know, everybody tends to want to make the biggest building that they possibly can for the amount of money that they think they have. Um, and, you know, I, I've yet to see the building project where everything goes according to plan and according to budget. And so, you know, people want to kind of like start with their budget maxed out right from the right from the design, you know, building as much building as they possibly can for the amount of money they have and then running out partway through. Right. So, right. you know, um, keeping you know, keeping a, a, a sort of grip on size, I think is really important. And then from there, you know, really obvious things like passive solar design, um, which I think in, in our climate up here in Ontario, passive solar often gets sort of viewed through the lens of, of trying to maximize winter um, solar gain in the building. 
um, sometimes at the expense of summer shading, which is especially with climate change becoming more and more important. And, you know, in a lot of ways, because we have a, a, a cloudier um, winter climate here where you often don't have very much direct summer sun or winter sunshine to benefit from, uh, but you sure get a lot of summer sun. Uh, thinking about passive solar from the, from the shading point of view, um, I think is really important and, uh, and often gets overlooked. Yeah, so many areas now are using a ton more energy in the cooling process in the summertime than they do in the heating in the winter, partly because uh, you can heat a home with wood or other local resources fairly easily in a lot of places, whereas you can't burn wood to cool a house, obviously. And the infrastructure, especially in cities where you're having that sort of heat island effect for having paved over so many surfaces, not having much green space, is exacerbating the problem hugely. What are some of the things that you recommend for passive cooling techniques in a design? Well, mostly, you know, from on the south face of the building, making sure that um, whatever um, overhangs you have for your building, roof overhangs, will provide uh, adequate shading through the summer. Um, so that's sort of the, you know, the, the easy, low-hanging fruit part of things. Um, and this especially tends to get ignored on, on houses that are more than one story. So, you know, if you have an appropriate, say, 24-inch roof overhang, on a two-story building, that will do a great job of shading the second-story windows, but the main story windows are, are still going to be exposed. So, you know, making sure that 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 all of those southern windows uh, have summer shading, and then really paying attention to the west side of buildings because it's pretty easy to design in a, a, an appropriate overhang on the south side of a building, but on the west, as the sun is sort of lower in the sky. Um, a typical roof overhang is not going to shade those windows, and because it's later in the day and the temperatures are already high, and the you know the the, the air temperature's gone up, uh, having that west sun sort of beating into your windows uh, is a huge cause of overheating. So you know, thinking about ways to either just minimize western windows, to use porches on that side of the building, or you know other kinds of of coverings on the windows, whether that's you know. Uh, vines or blinds or um, coatings directly on the glass but you know really trying to be conscious that that what western windows you have are definitely going to be uh, a a pretty major source of overheating absolutely now with all of these design considerations in mind you know obviously a lot of them are for saving money or reducing the carbon footprint for consumption of maintaining the building what would you consider sort of the the highest potential or the best that one could hope to do with the design of a building and how it performs and how responsible it acts in the building process as well? What would be the ideal? Um, well, the ideal would be to, you know, use plant-based materials, uh, in particular insulation materials, um, to, you know, achieve the highest degree of energy efficiency that, that, that is practical and that somebody can afford, um, you know, in a design that's, that's got really good, uh, passive, um, solar, um, characteristics. 
Um, and then to think, you know, really carefully about also the uh, the fuel source for the for the um, for the heating and the cooling, because we tend to be focused very much on on sort of energy as the metric, but it it's very different whether that energy comes from say you know as you mentioned burning wood or burning natural gas or say using electricity. Um, I'm here in Ontario, Canada, where our grid is actually quite clean. So relying on electricity for uh, for heating and cooling um, from a climate change point of view is actually uh, a pretty great option. But that same option in, say, Massachusetts would be a, a really bad option. So making sure that that you think about um, that you think about the fuel use as well, because that'll be uh, a huge driver of your of your overall carbon footprint. Hmm. Now, there's been a lot of talk, especially in the last couple of decades, with new standards for building. And I'm talking about sort of the more common ones like the LEED standard and increasingly the living building challenge. Have you ever thought of those as good metrics to aspire to? Or do you feel like they're somewhat misguided and are setting up sort of goalposts in the wrong direction? Um. I would actually say both at the same time. Okay. Um, I think, you know, again, any, any sort of um, standard that has a, um, those kind of metrics applied to it, you do have to think about why you are trying to achieve those things and what it is you're trying to achieve in, in doing them. So, um, you know, I do, I really like the, the living building, uh, standard a lot. I think there's a lot of really great things in it. Um, but I do think that sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily answer, you know, the, the question that the, that the owner had at the start or the, or the desire that the owner had at the start. And so, you know, making sure that if you are using those systems that, that you're, you're taking into account what it is you want to achieve as well, you know, so, um, the, the lead standard is is sort of uh, um, definitely a, a much lower threshold than living building challenge. Um, so, you know, we've done a few lead projects and for example, on the indoor air quality side of things, you can get the highest number of points for indoor air quality by, you know, choosing 16 products that are really, you know, low emitting products, but you could also then have, 20 products that are high emitting products, but you ticked enough boxes that you got the, you know, the good air quality score right. um, from lead. So if, if what you want is that stamp of approval, then ticking those boxes is great. If what you want is a completely non-toxic house, then you'd want to go further. Um, and the living building challenge has a, you know, a really great standard in terms of, you know, indoor environment quality. Um, their, their chemical red list is, um, is a pretty good one to, to work with, you know, to sort of avoid the, 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 the big offenders in terms of, uh, indoor environment quality. Um, but again, like it's, it's possible to go further than what that, than what that red list has on it. If you want to make sure your environment is really clean. And I think, you know, all of those standards, they're all trying to work from the point of view of, the sort of existing um, world of construction um, and the, the sort of more natural building approaches, um, you tend to meet all of the requirements 
without um, having to work very hard because you're sort of starting from a, a much better point in, in terms of the, the basic characteristics of those materials. Um, but what the, what especially the living building challenge can be good for is, you know, a lot of people who are into natural building think about the walls of their house, you know, and, and all the talk is about walls, earth walls, straw bale walls, cob walls, these walls, right. you know, it's all about walls, but something like the living building challenge, you know, really drives you to have to think about, well, what is your foundation? What is your roof? What are your windows? What are your paints? What are your, you know, there's so much else that goes into the building. What are your kitchen cabinets made out of? So living building challenge kind of, you know, holds the, the designer and the builder to a, a high standard across the entire, uh, across the entire building. And, uh, and, you know, that can be, that can be really helpful uh, for people who really want to have sort of like a, a really great building. But then, you know, living building challenge also to get, you know, fully certified, you have to be, um, you know, net zero energy and, uh, and net zero water. And that's not, you know, again, you'd want to ask why you're doing that. You know, the, the net zero energy thing of, of producing as much renewables as you use on site here in Ontario, where our grid is relatively clean. I'm not really achieving much in terms of uh, climate change or pollution reduction by feeding a whole bunch of my own solar energy into a grid that's already relatively clean. Right. And so, you know, and if I have, um, you know, the living building challenge wants you to treat uh, all your black and gray water on site. But if you're in a city, it doesn't really make that much sense for everybody to have to have their own septic tank and, and gray water field, you know, on every city lot when we've already got this infrastructure that's designed to carry that gray water away. Um, so, you know, I, I think all of those standards have really good pieces. And what we try to do is, is with our clients, we have a, a kind of criteria matrix that we get them to fill out. So we have those 10 different criteria we talked about earlier and, you know, sort of a, a one through four scale on all of them. And what we try to do is, is also in, in that scale point to which, um, which existing building standards kind of relate to that scale. So, you know, for example, if you're interested in uh, the amount of waste you're producing, number one on our scale would be, I'm not going to think about waste at all. Number two would be, I want to have a simple waste management plan, which would be, you know, uh, along the lines of like uh, a simple lead certification. Uh, a number three would be, I want to have a fairly comprehensive waste management plan, which might be like uh, lead gold kind of standard, or I want to basically make no construction waste. And that would be like the living building challenge standard. So, you know, we try to direct people towards the, the pieces of those standards that might relate directly to their individual goals. Um, and in that way, you know, somebody might not get, say, a LEED Platinum certification because they don't want to do all of the things or they want to surpass some of the things. But, you know, you can sort of see for the criteria that matter to you to the degree that they matter, which of those, uh, you know, existing programs might be a good place to go to to figure out how to do that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And 
I think it's a really good way of looking at it so that it doesn't become sort of an arbitrary system of just ticking off boxes in order to get certifications in order to pass the test or um, you're kind of like in education, right? Just studying to the test and not really learning the entire concept in depth. I think like you mentioned, sort of the, the forest can be lost for the trees, so to speak, by narrowly focusing on just the criteria that are put forth by these certifications and missing some of the context, especially when it comes to um, a client and contractor or designer relationship, what's more important for their long-term lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they because as soon as you, you make something a system, you do end up with sort of rules that um, are well-intentioned, but sometimes a bit arbitrary. So, you know, our own house was, was um, we were attempting the living building challenge. And so we decided that we wouldn't use any plywood because the plywoods all had formaldehyde glues in them at the time. And they had a no formaldehyde rule in the living building challenge and we didn't want any formaldehyde so we went to uh, a local sawmill 150 year old operation family operation uh the mill is water powered you know they get all their logs from within a 100 kilometer radius like really great forestry practices and we got them to make us one by eight decking to replace plywood but the living building challenge only accepts fsc certified wood and so you know, we ended up making this choice that for us was, you know, clearly the right choice for our goals and for, you know, our desire to use really sustainable wood um, and eliminate chemicals. But from the point of view of the living building challenge, we would have been better off ordering the no formaldehyde plywood from Oregon and having it shipped here uh, because it was because it was FSE certified. And so you know, I kind of understand the reasons that they would want to do that because if if you don't have a certification for the wood, then it can be arbitrary. You know, is this good wood or not? But well, it's also difficult for homework, them, I would imagine, to follow up on every individual decision that someone is applying to to get a certification. Absolutely, yeah. they can do yeah. So I, I, system I, that they know well. That's right. So I understand it from. That's what I was sort of saying is that as soon as you have a, a system and you start applying rules, then you start, you know, finding yourself in those situations. And so while I really appreciate and, and do work with those systems a lot, I think there's a lot of good stuff in them. Um, I, I don't want to get attached to, to any of them dogmatically because they can sort of, you know, push you into making decisions just so you get the certification and not so that you're trying to meet your own goals. So we're always trying to help clients you know, meet their own goals. And if, if there's a particular rating system that gets them there, that's great. But if that rating system doesn't, then, you know, I'd gladly steer them in the direction of, of making sure that, that their own goals are met first. Wonderful. I really like that. Now, again, taking a little bit of a shift, but kind of staying on topic, this idea of systems, there are certain types of natural building materials that have gained enough popularity that they're starting to make their way into the codes and regulations and starting to become systematized. Especially now I'm thinking about straw bale, um, hempcrete, and increasingly the prefab version of straw bales and even light straw clay. Now, maybe light straw clay a little less so, but they kind of all fall into these categories of increasingly accepted insulative materials that you could consider to be natural materials. Now, hemp maybe being the most recent one that is 
becoming widely accepted because of the legalization of hemp recently and the potential to, I guess, um, systematize or make it, um, what would you call it, like basic enough or standardized enough that it can meet codes anywhere. What are your opinions on this increasing standardization of non-standard natural products like this? Do you think it's a move in the right direction or do you think it's going to start to kind of take the soul or the individuality out of these vernacular materials? Um, I think it, it really depends a lot on, on, on how that ends up happening. So I think that the case of, of straw bale to me is, is kind of the, the best case scenario the the group in the U S who actually got uh, straw bale as part of the, the international residential code in the, in the U S now, but, but that team of people who, who worked on getting that done really had it in their minds to make sure that they weren't creating a sort of one solution or a standard that, that meant that everybody had to do it the same everywhere. And so because they went into it with that intent, you know, that, that code allows for, um, you know, load bearing or Nebraska style buildings. It allows for a wide range of different sort of post and beam style uh, and frame type buildings um, it's more of a uh, a performance standard than it is a uh, a bunch of prescriptions. So you know, because there are you know a hundred different ways you could make a straw bale building, that code was written in a way that you know makes sure that ninety eight of those hundred ways are completely acceptable. So I think if codes you know move in that direction, so that um, you know, so rather than saying, you know, one of the things that a straw bale code could have said is you've got to have a cement or lime based plaster. Um, but what the, what the, the folks doing the U S codes did was said, as long as your plaster meets this minimum strength requirement, then it's suitable. And so then that leaves the door open to, um, earthen based plasters. And so, you know, you don't, the code doesn't say you have to use this type of straw or this type of twine on your straw. It just says a bale needs to be, you know, this density, uh, have a minimum of this amount of moisture content. And so again, that sort of leaves it open to, to lots of different types of straw being able to meet that. So I think as long as, as long as the codification happens, uh, in that way, it's a really positive thing because, you know, that code existing there just makes it accessible to so many more people to to be able to do these buildings so much more affordably without having to have you know custom engineering and potentially a code consultant and you know complicating that whole um that whole permit process uh, i think that's really positive so you know hopefully uh, things continue to go down that path as as some of these other materials start to make their way into the codes mm. Now, within your own experience working around codes and restrictions and regulations, what have been some of the biggest challenges in kind of following your conscience and developing the best buildings that you know how to and the restrictions that are in place that would maybe limit the potential of what you would like to do in order to comply with what the state or regulatory bodies require of you? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think one thing that I've learned is to is to not see those codes necessarily as restrictions. You know, at, at the core, all codes are public safety documents. And uh, I learned a long time ago from a, a colleague, David Eisenberg, that, you know, really we want the exact same things from a building that a code official does. You know, we... Yeah. We want to ensure that this building is safe for all the occupants. Um, we want to make sure that it's safe for a long time. We want to make sure that it can, you know, um, withstand whatever, you know, climatic conditions or ground conditions exist. So, like, we share all of those goals. And, in fact, we have a whole bunch of other public health and safety goals that are complementary to that. You know, we want to not just make the building safe kind of structurally we want to make sure that it's safe in terms of uh indoor environment quality we want to make sure it's in terms of it's not wrecking the whole rest of the planet in order to make you know a safe haven for a, for an occupant so um we're not really at odds with with the the intent of the codes at all um and i think even just approaching code officials in that way where it's like you know instead of going in bristling and, and, you know, ready for a fight, uh, we go in, you know, saying, Hey, we want the same things you want. And this is how we're interpreting, uh, your notion of safety. And if you look at it, we're actually trying to do more, what more of what you're trying to do than less of what you're trying to do. Um, and you know, lots of the codes in their in their sort of preambles, um, talk about the fact that they're not meant to restrict or limit people and what they want to do, um, but to just ensure that, that those things are done, are done safely. So I think coming at it from that point of view is really helpful. We've gotten really good uh, here in Ontario. There's sort of a, a system for what's called alternative compliance. And so we've gotten really good at sort of writing alternative compliance packages where we, um, you know, find all the areas of the code where uh, a building official might have questions about what we're doing, find, you know, relevant test results from Canada and around the world that kind of show that what we're doing meets the, the minimum intent of the code and, in fact, sort of surpasses it in most cases. Um, but I think that the thing that we found, it's not really limiting, but the 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 difficulty in working with alternatives and codes is just you have to expect to take more time to prepare those documents. You have to expect to take more time to have the conversations at the building department to get the permit. Um, and you may be sort of taking on some additional costs if you need, you know, a structural engineer involved or an architect involved or a code consultant involved. So, you know, we've never not been able to do something that we've, proposed to do and we've done some things that I think people would think are pretty out there and alternative but everything we've done you know has has received uh, approval from a building department here but it's you know it hasn't always been a the straightest easiest path to make that happen you know sometimes we have to to work at it sure and the more people like you and other natural builders kind of work directly with these coding bodies and regulatory bodies it sort of it dismantles the hurdles for the next person coming there because you'll have established sort of a rapport and a system or at least a reference 
that someone can point to, especially if uh, you're working at a higher quality and, and set a good example that I, I would imagine would make it much easier for other people, even with less experience, to be able to build with these methods, materials, or techniques. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for, for you know, owner builders who are, are, you know, thinking about approaching a building department, it's really beneficial to, you know, take a couple minutes and think about what you're doing from the point of view of the person on the other side of that desk. You know, you're walking in with possibly zero building experience likely not a great depth of code knowledge and an idea for, you know, a material or a, an approach or a system or possibly a whole bunch of them that, you know, the, the code official has no experience with and, and no precedent for. And so, you know, you have all of that sort of baggage sitting on your shoulder when you go in. And so I think it's really important to kind of acknowledge that and, and you know, think about what can I do to alleviate this person's concerns and their real concerns. If you think about it from that point of view, like of uh, a building, a building department is taking on the liability for that building for decades to come long after you as the owner builder have moved on possibly. Um, and so if they're looking at somebody with zero experience, zero knowledge and a bunch of what they see as kooky ideas, um, you know, the, the onus is on you to make sure that, that you're able to say, I know you feel like this and, and here's what I'm going to do to make sure that, you know, I'm not exposing you to un, undue liability from your end. Yeah. And I think that attitude of collaboration and cooperation goes a long way, especially when first making contact with these. I know um, through following your work and the work of Siggy Coco in the United States and um, April McGill and some of my other, you know, inspirational <laughs> builders that I've followed, they've all sort of come with that attitude, with that um, cooperative spirit when addressing these bodies that many other people try to avoid or perhaps go in with an antagonistic attitude. And I, I've only heard good results by starting the conversation out on that footing. Yeah, I think, you know, and one of the unexpected, you know, consequences of the of the career path that I've had is that I actually know my Ontario building code extremely well. You know, I can now have those conversations with building officials where, um, you know, I actually have my code references down and, you know, know what the code says and where to find things in the code. And, and that's, you know, as a professional, that's really helpful. I definitely didn't have that as a, you know, when I was a first time owner builder and it's, you know, it's too much to expect a, an owner builder to do that. But, um, you know, maybe at least owning a copy of the code and having a sense of even just how the document works and what's, you know, what's expected of you uh, when you go in, I think is, is, uh, is really important. With that in mind, let's talk a little bit about the series that you are co-editing with New Society Publishers, the Essential Building Series. What was the vision behind this series of books and the base of education that you're hoping to get out to a wider readership, especially if people aspiring to build for themselves? Well, basically, I, I feel like the, the, you know, everything that I've done in my career since my first house has been an attempt to try to figure out how to um, provide the information that I wish I had when I was starting. So, mm. you know, all the books I've written and, and, and uh, all the courses I teach, you know, 
to a large degree are sort of aimed at, you know, boy, I wish these are the things that I wish I knew when I was getting started. So um, the, the Essentials book series from New Society is, you know, kind of taking each uh, of the, the key kind of natural building materials uh, and treating it as its, you know, its own subject and, you know, really trying to think about it the way we've just, in the way we've had this conversation, like how does this work from all these different criteria levels? Uh, how does it work from the code? Um, and, you know, what are, what are some of the sort of like, you know, key uh, requirements of those systems? Um, you know, we provide, I guess, in, in the way that, that we were talking about the, the straw bale code in the U.S. being sort of very open-ended, the idea with the essential series is, you know, not, not here is the way to work with this material, but here are all the ways you can work with this material and kind of the pluses and minuses of, of each of these approaches, you know, within that, within that topic. So, you know, if it's hempcrete, there's not just, you know, one way to do hempcrete. The, the book looks at a bunch of different framing systems, a bunch of different, uh, you know, binders that you can use, uh, a bunch of different finishes you can put on the wall, um, and, and, you know, tries to, to make the case uh, for each of them in terms of what, what are their advantages and what are their disadvantages. And so through this understanding of so many varied materials and techniques, what sort of important considerations for people aspiring to build a natural home for themselves? What sort of advice would you give to them starting out? The biggest one would be you, you sort of, the, the, the upfront time that you spend uh, researching and studying and thinking is, is the best investment that you're going to make. So, you know, taking some courses, getting some books, um, uh, going and looking at buildings and talking to owners, um, you know, putting together a, a really good uh, design and construction team, you know, all of those things are so important in, in how the building comes together. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the people I've seen have the sort of worst time in, in trying to tackle this themselves are the people who've been, uh, really rushing it. You know, they've, mm -hmm. they're trying to, you know, go from design to building in six months and, you know, they're just making decisions really quickly, uh, and without a lot of thought and without a lot of research and, that pretty much always uh, turns around and, and kind of like bites you in the butt. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just take the time to, you know, know that, yeah, this is probably the biggest project you're ever going to undertake. It's probably the most money you're ever going to spend in your life. Uh, you're going to be living with the results for a really long time. Uh, and the results are probably going to outlive you. So there's, you know, you've got some responsibility to, uh, to future generations so, you know, give, give that, that uh, a decision of that scope or a project of that scope, you know, the, the benefit of uh, some really good, deep consideration before you plow forward. Absolutely. And with that in mind, talking about research and different uh, avenues to get more information, can you tell our listeners about how they can get in touch with you, the Endeavor Center in particular, and how they can find all of those resources that you've been putting out for so many years? Sure. Yeah. Well, the uh, the book series is from New Society, who who carry that essential series, but also um, all kinds of other really great uh, natural building books and renewable energy books. 
Um, so you can uh, check out their website for all of that. And then, yeah, here at the Endeavor Center, um, we offer um, lots of different uh, hands-on workshops. We offer uh, a workshop called Design Your Own Sustainable Home, which is kind of a, uh, a really great place to get started in terms of thinking about all these criteria and, and how you uh, would interpret them and, and sort of starting to shape your thoughts on, on what you might build. Uh, we also offer some longer courses. We do a one-month natural building intensive uh, and a five-month sustainable building certificate program where uh, the class basically builds a, a really great high-performance natural building from start to finish with some really awesome instructors on site the whole time. So, yeah, we've got a whole bunch of, of different uh, programs and, and options for people. And uh, EndeavorCenter.org is our website, so people can check out the schedule. And that website also has you know, recipes for materials we mix and things we do and systems that we work with. And yeah, the, and we actually have a new website coming out this fall uh, that'll have even more stuff, but it's got all our, um, you know, looks at all the different projects we've built and, and step-by-step um, books on, on each of those projects. So there's a pretty, pretty good depth of uh, information on that site. It certainly is. I highly recommend it. And I'll be sure to put links to all of those resources that you mentioned, uh, as well as some of my favorite books that I've gone through have been invaluable resources for me. And I can definitely thank you on behalf of a lot of other natural builders that I know for taking the time to put out such in-depth resources that we've been able to use as references to get past uh, sticking points and to just understand these topics uh, in, in much more depth and with the the hard data to back it up, which can otherwise be hard to find. So thank you so much for doing that. Uh, it's such a pleasure to finally get to talk to you. And I really hope that we can stay in touch and maybe do a follow-up in a future session. That would be great. I'd, uh, I'd really love to do that. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. You have a great rest of your day. Okay. Yep. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.